welcome to the Lubbers Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are rereading our favourite series of novels, the Aubrey Maturin books of Patrick O'Brien. So, Mike, do the usual for us, please. Tell us where we were last week. Tell us where we might be headed to this week. Oh, thanks again. Love to. Last week in Chapter 6, the surprise was hit by a Levanter. Stephen learned about prize money while caring for young Daniel, who'd been re-injured in that storm. Killick's mates continued to shun him because of the, the narwhal horn. And the British council in Algiers told Stephen and Jacob about the new day who was off hunting in the mountains and sent a guide and some Turkish guards to take them to meet with the vizier and then hopefully with the day. Now, this time, Stephen and Jacob head off into the mountains. Their animals, bribes, secret acquaintances, some Royal Navy history, a lion hunt, grand theft, and a wicked desert sandstorm. Ooh, lots to work with here. Um, I, I love the uh, the lion and the sandstorm. This sounds like sounds like a whole new environment for Stephen to have his adventures in. Let's see. Let's see where we are. To begin with, we're right at the beginning of Stephen's journey into the wilderness. There's the consul's guide, Ibrahim, and the Turkish guards, and together they all ride out. And there's this nice little sort of one-upmanship battle going on between the guide and Stephen. The guide hears Stephen telling Jacob how homely and agreeable and familiar the countryside is. And he's not very happy with this. He thinks his, his countryside, his neighbourhood is something special. He's used to foreigners being astonished by his countries. So he asks Jacob if Stephen had indeed used the word homely. And he goes on and says, well, does your home have these huge birds that you see in front of you here? Yes, replies Stephen. He gives them the, the names of the, all the different vulture species that he sees. Eagles, says the guide. Certainly, several kinds. Bears, of course. Boars, only too many, alas. Apes, naturally. Scorpions, under every flat stone. Where is the gentleman's home? Asked the indignant guide. And Stephen gets to say, well, you, you think I'm English or a best Irish, but the answer is Spain. So, Mike, this, this changes the whole context of the conversation here with the guide. He's really delighted. Turns out that his fourth great-grandfather was from Spain. Stephen knows the place and comments on the Grand Mosque. Now, these days, a Grand Mosque and Cathedral, I think, all in one place, in the, the glory of the Western world in Cordoba. And the, uh, the guide tells Stephen that, well, I hope to show you a lion or a leopard. Both, he says, perhaps with God's blessing, inshallah, <laughs> near the quarters of the day. And Mike, wait, there's a little mini story structure, all of its own in this chapter, and we've just set it running here with the possibility that we might find a lion. Let's see what happens next. Yeah, there you go. Well, at dusk, they pull into a village, and a young girl comes out and calls Sarah... And Stephen's camel, who had been, O'Brien tells us, awkward and ugly and ill-tempered for Stephen, all of a sudden is excited and, you know, lovely and runs to the girl, lowers its head for an embrace. It turns out that these camels they're riding belong to this village. And, and apparently this girl has a special relationship with it. Well, the next day, Stephen sees many more unfamiliar plants and interesting birds commenting on a 
brown-necked African raven that he's always hoped to see. The guide is pleased to hear that there are none of those particular birds in Spain. (laughs) A horseman is sent ahead to let the vizier know they're coming. And Joseph suggests that he pose as Stephen's interpreter since Stephen can speak French with the vizier. We know that the vizier speaks French. And he believes the two of them, Stephen and the vizier, can reach an agreement easier if it's not two against one, having three people in the room, especially with this beautiful jewel that they intend to give the vizier that Jacob's Canaanite cousin acquired as a gift, or what we might say a socially acceptable bribe. So (laughs) Jacob knows, too, that the vizier's calligrapher is also a Canaanite, and so Jacob may be more effective if he's seen as this drogoman, this interpreter, not a British representative, better able to really speak more discreetly with others rather than watch him because he's with the intelligence group or with the British ministry. Jacob's prepared a formal letter of introduction for Stephen in Turkish, stating that he's on a confidential mission for the British ministry. And Stephen doesn't like having his intelligence identity publicly compromised, but says he's doing it because there's just so much at stake with Napoleon. So, Ian, this blue jewel, tell us a little bit here. Well, it's a lapis lazuli is famously a, a very beautiful, rich, deep blue. And I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the gift slash bribe that they're planning to use in this negotiation has the same color as a certain other jewel that's been an important part of the story that I think we might come back to in just a couple of paragraphs time. I was also really tickled to pick up on the connection to canites. And we've mentioned this before back in chapter four, I think, that Cain was the son of Adam and Eve and how the followers, this agnostic sect of the Canaanites, followed Cain and were said to be born with the mark of Cain. And I hadn't realized until I saw a link in the page on Cainites in Wikipedia that said, see also Sethians. And of course, the Sethians were also agnostic sect. If I've got it right, Mike, Seth was the third son born to Adam and Eve, kind of not quite to make up for the death of Abel, but it means in place of, doesn't it? Yeah, and and Eve certainly says that in Genesis. She says, ah, you know, God's been gracious and given me a replacement for Abel. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these two sects, fascinatingly, as you say, both turn into this Gnostic Gnostic sects, but also of two very, in some ways, competing characters here still. Yeah, and I I haven't heard or read since any mention of the Canaanites, who seem to have mainly existed in the first couple of centuries A.D., in the world of Patrick O'Brien, we know that the Sethians were still around as a non-conformist sect in southern England in Regency times to the benefit, we suppose, of the town of Shelmiston, which was also fictional. But there you go. Right. Now, as they're on their travels into the mountains, Jacob recognises the day's hunting lodge. He says he had visited it as a boy. And Stephen sees a particular glance between Jacob and an official who comes out to welcome them, the vizier's undersecretary. So there's some recognition here. Jacob gives Stephen this formal Turkish letter of introduction and the gift box with the brooch as they walk in. 
Stephen admires this really splendid stone and he makes the connection now with the colour. The beauty of this brooch reminds him of the blue diamond that he had buried Diana with. And the text says he felt the familiar chill grip him, the sort of frigid indifference to virtually anything, and he welcomed the opening door. So, a real, you know, heart-chilling moment for Stephen makes us kind of wonder what to expect on Stephen's behalf in the coming chapters. He's, he's going to need all of his powers and all of his energy, I think, to carry off this negotiation. Let's see if he's going to be put off his stride. It's so true. Ian. I, I was thinking the same thing. You know, here they're waiting to be, you know, kind of ushered into the vizier. And we'd heard Jack, you know, quite some time ago saying, you know, the only thing keeping Stephen kind of alive is fighting Napoleon here. So Stephen's got kind of caught back up in that really dark hole again. The door opens and this tall, gray bearded, cross looking man takes Stephen in. And in a loud official voice, he announces the Christian and leaves the room. So I think I think this is a nice, you know, kind of like smacking the newborn baby on the rear to pull Stephen back <laughs> into You're going to have all your powers here, bud. You are definitely not warmly coddled in this atmosphere. But Stephen, knowing that the vizier speaks French, introduces himself in French. And we know how close and dear to Stephen's heart that language and that time of his life yeah. is. He says he carries an introduction to the day from his Britannic Majesty's consul in Algiers, but that he thought it would be proper to pay his respects to the vizier first, and if it's customary, show him the letter. So Stephen, right, right back into form here. And he adds that he's left his interpreter behind since he's been told that the vizier speaks French. Right. So it's quite, quite an auspicious start, I guess. The vizier says that it's customary to show him the documents first and he offers Stephen coffee and a hookah to smoke. And I'm wondering about this. I'm thinking, you know, is this some kind of effort at suborning the message somehow? Is this a problem? Stephen's instincts seem to tell him that this is an okay thing. This seems like a natural kind of protocol. So he engages in conversation with the vizier about this. This is a private and confidential mission, says the vizier. In that case, the day will discuss it with him after he speaks with Stephen, saying that discussing his general nature with him, with the vizier, might save Stephen some time and a long and tiring journey. Stephen goes along with this, um, but also asks the vizier to accept this trifling token of my personal esteem and hands over the gift. The vizier is really stunned by this stone. He's never seen its like for perfection. He thanks him. He says he'll wear it in his turban on Friday, which is the holy day in the Muslim week. Stephen makes a pro proper belittling murmurs and gestures, which is nice. And he says that uh, the ride that they're going to go on may be physically wearisome, but as an amateur naturalist, he, Stephen, is going to be repaid by seeing all of these different plants and birds and animals, and maybe even traces of large animals that he's seen. And he's thinking here of lions and leopards, I guess. The vizier says, are you then a hunter? And Stephen says, yes, as far as my feeble powers allow me. The vizier says that he himself hunts, but he's nothing compared with his highness the day. And after they've discussed this matter a little bit more back and forth between the two of them, then they think maybe they might be able to go shooting together. The vizier gets one last little uh, longing look at the stone and says, okay, go ahead. 
tell me the reason for your very welcome presence in this wilderness. So now, now Stephen gets to decide what of his story he's going to unload here in front of the vizier. Right. And he pretty much gives it to him straight. Stephen tells him about their knowledge of the Shiite confederacies and the brotherhoods along the Adriatic and Ionian coast, which support Napoleon. And their plan to fund mercenaries to delay the Russians and Austrians meeting up to support the British against Napoleon. So he says that his Britannic Majesty's government would be grieved if any help were given to these people, these people with this plan. And the vizier says, well, the day is a most orthodox Sunnite and that the violent Shiites would never ask the orthodox day for help. And he gives it to him something that he thinks Stephen would understand. No more than Calvinists would ask the Catholic Vatican. So he's saying, you've got to understand we're both Muslims, but very different. In addition the vizier adds, the day hates Napoleon for his conduct at Jaffa, at Acre, and Abukir. And the day is a friend of King George and the Royal Navy, which he points out was so successful just recently in the Adriatic. And certainly the day would not want to offend either King George or the Royal Navy. He says that the day will tell Stephen all this more convincingly himself when they meet. He says, for now, why don't we hunt some palm doves today and then Stephen and his interpreter can ride to see the day tomorrow. Uh, He'll have them escorted by one of the day's huntsmen down a special private road since ordinary people who venture into that territory are impaled. He mentions there's been many, many impalings lately, including a hermaphrodite. (laughs) Ah, okay. So, stick a pin in this. <laughs> I think this might uh, this might count as uh, Chekhov's impaling spike, right? Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> right. Right. Well put. Again. So this huntsman n- needs to be sure that Stephen and Jacob and the consul's guide get to see anything vaguely interesting to a natural philosopher along the way, including what they call le club des lions, the club of the lions. Come back to that in a second for what it's worth. And as they're heading along there, they say they see footprints of jackals and of a hyena and the trace of a large serpent. Ibrahim even gives this serpent a name. He says he believes it was a Malpolon monspesulanus. And he says that he had one as a pet. Okay, as you do. And Stephen says, well, was it, was it much of a satisfactory pet? <laughs> I love the guy's very deadpan assessment of the, his relationship with his pet snake. There was a degree of recognition and a certain tolerance, nothing more. (laughs) Now, Le Club des Lions, Mike, I think you and I have both dug around for what reference this could be. Anthony Gary Brown's The Guide for the Perplexed says this this doesn't seem like a recognizable kind of French phrase in the French language. It doesn't mean the same as the lion's den in French. If you Google it, you get references to the Lions Club. Maybe O'Brien was thinking that he knew their Lions Club in uh, in Collier. I don't know. <laughs> but there's something about this place as a, as a gathering for lions, and that's about all we can get from the phrase, right? Yeah, we, we should we should stick a pin in that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then this snake Malpolon monspesulanus. We, we've had fictitious animals in this book, and we've had real ones. Where, where do you think this one lands? Well, it turns out this is a real one. It's a real one. It's mildly venomous. It has 
fangs in the rear, not in the front. It is really, you know, can be very large, six to seven feet long, weighs up to four pounds. Perhaps, you know, some of the stuff that I looked at said Europe and North America's largest snake. They have large eyes with round pupils and a very aggressive looking face. So I'm, hmm. I, you know, I, I, looking at pictures of this, I, I get where this could be kind of stunning. Now, even though it's got a toxic venom, that it's mildly toxic. And so this snake is not very dangerous to people unless you make it mad and stick your finger in its mouth. Um, yeah. Uh, this, you, know, the, you have to get back to those rear fangs so that, you know, this snake trying to bite us on our broad skin, not as likely to get purchased. But if it gets hold of you, you know, it, it could do it. And I couldn't help but thinking to myself, perhaps this is an interesting description of either the vizier that Stephen has yeah. just met or the day that he's about to meet here. Yeah, I thought fascinating. What a what yeah. a fact. You know, why would he why would he just throw this thing in here? But maybe, maybe, you know, we'll come back to that again, just like the Lions Club. <laughs> yeah. So they stop for a drink, and as they do so, they see two of the day's messengers coming from different directions and passing each other on a road above them. So this um some some communication going on between the day and other people outside of his camp. Uh, as they arrive at the gate to the day's camp, Ibrahim shows the guards the pass from the vizier. This document saying these are these are these particular visitors. They look down the mountain at the large lake below and the stream that feeds it, hidden in trees. This was called Shat Al something. I can't remember what it was, but Shat was the name of the waterway or the lake. I think anyhow. Right, right, absolutely. Name of the lake down there. Riding on toward the camp. They see the impaling spikes, just as you do, passing. And Stephen watches above in the sky and sees circling griffins and bearded vultures and black vultures. Of course, these are carrion birds, all of them. So he's speculating on which which of these birds or anybody else, for that matter, would be brave enough to come down and take some of the meat from the impaled bodies. He's not surprised when it's a bearded vulture that swoops down only to have his prize, his particular bit of carrion, attacked by two black vultures, whose attack loses the prize then in an impossible thicket. And St- Stephen has this little vent here about the vultures that he doesn't like. That is perfectly typical, he says, of your black vulture. Greedy, precipitate, grasping, and stupid. A bird with as much sense as a peahen would have hit him 50 feet up, and a handy mate would have caught the bone in midair. <laughs> So we said before that Stephen needs to be on his game as he goes into this negotiation with the day. Even the local carrion birds need to be on their game and cunning and strategic. Uh, perhaps there's a, a little lesson in the nature's background here for Stephen and Jacob as they navigate the uncharted diplomatic and political waters. Let's see. Let's see how they're going to get on. Great point, Ian. Love that. Abraham speaks some English, senses that Stephen's kind of disappointed, you know, because he hears him, say, you know, making this comment. And he asks Jacob to tell him, you know, we're going to see a lot more vultures soon waiting to pick over the day's hunting leftovers. So we've seen the human leftovers. Now we'll see the, you know, they'll be hunting leftovers, as well as some red birds when we detour down to the lake. We have to detour down because we don't want to upset the deer and the wild boars and lions and leopards that are up higher where the day hunts. We don't, don't want to do that. 
And Stephen asks Jacob if a devout Muslim eats wild boar. You know, he's thinking, you know, Muslims don't eat pork. What's going on here? Jacob says, as long as it's truly wild and hairy, otherwise it would be unclean. Mm. And on the way down, Abraham points out some leopard tracks in the mud. Well, Stephen looks ahead and spots leopard in a tree, and, and he's trying to get out his telescope to take a better look, but the leopard spots him and, and heads off. And I'm, I'm starting to get in a little bit of this, like you had said, this background of how is what's going on in the animal world here, kind of setting up what's going on around Stephen and Jacob here in this political, you know, kind of intelligence world. Yeah. And, and we know that these are two sets of environments that O'Brien loves to write about. He loves to write about and anthropomorphize animals and in conjunction with a tricky intelligence task here, there's, there's got to be a lot for us to watch out for. Now, Jacob tells Stephen, you might think me crass, but all I want to know about birds and beasts and flowers is are they dangerous, are they useful, or are they good to eat? Or to reuse the, the phrase beloved of internet forums around the Patrick O'Brien world, can it be et? Stephen realizes this is could have been a, a little bit of an implied rebuke for Stephen droning on a bit about birds and beasts and begs his pardon for being such a bore. And at that moment, they hear a very non-boring sound. They hear the sound of a lion with an enormously powerful roar somewhere off in the distance. And Jacob says he'd much rather know about him, the lion, than a, a curious and possibly nondescript nuthatch. So that's putting a lot of pressure on the on, on small birds, I think, to be as exciting and as visually compelling as a lion. But we shall see. I think that uh, Jacob is setting things uh, setting his sights a little bit high, expecting something like a nuthatch to compete in his attention with something as exciting as a lion. But I don't think he's going to be allowed to be dismissive of birds for too long because they head on through some small shrubs and trees and emerge on the shore of the lake, this shat, right next to countless flamingos wading in the water. The ones closest to them fly up in its glorious display and the rest continue feeding in the lake. And this is the moment for Jacob when he realizes the appeal. He turns to Stephen and says, if that unspeakably glorious spectacle is ornithology, then I am an ornithologist. I had no idea that such splendor existed. You must tell me much much more. Ah, oh, welcome to the club, Jacob. We're getting t-shirts made. <laughs> there you go. It's right up there with, I am a urinator. That <laughs> I am an orthopod. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Abraham comes over and asks Jacob if the gentleman, meaning Stephen, has seen the red birds. Stephen smiles at Abraham. He doesn't even need a translation here. Makes the appropriate gestures and gives him a guinea from his waistband. So Stephen's like saying, well done. I think he's thrilled about Jacob's reaction and, you know, is loving that, you know, perhaps they've taken him here because it's like, I'm going to show you something special. Well, Jacob and Stephen have a long discussion. And, you know, Brian tells us in a lot more words that it's basically anything anyone would ever want to know about flamingos. And then Abraham tells Jacob, if Stephen doesn't mind a muddy detour, he'll show him a site he'll really appreciate. And Jacob says to Stephen about Abraham, he very rightly looks upon you as a creature of a finer essence. Wow. Stephen replied, long may he live, right? Let us by all means see his sight. <laughs> I'm loving this. 
Oh, great stuff. Well, what is this site that we're going to see? Um, it's in the muddy delta where the river meets the lake and there's a freshwater drinking place. And there they see extraordinary numbers of jackal, deer, hyena, leopard and bear tracks, as well as many lions. Ibrahim says, on some evenings, as many as eight lions on this side come down to drink and stare over at the lions of the other side and both sides roaring at each other. He watches them, he says, from up in a tree. No lionesses come down. Okay, so far, male lions only. They appear when a strange lioness comes through the area and all the lionesses hunt her down together. So Stephen assumes that this must be Le Club des Lions, the Lions Club. And he asks then if lions climb trees. And Ibrahim says, well, only leopards do that, not lions. However, we need to get moving because the day can't bear people being late. I wonder if Ibrahim's middle name sounds anything like Aubrey, Mike. What do you reckon? Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not a moment to lose here. I love that. That's great. Well, they arrive in the day's hunting camp, and the guards require them to show the vizier's pass again. As Jacob and Stephen walk in, the chief huntsman says the day will see them now. Stephen conveys his Britannic Majesty's government's greetings to the day, but as Jacob translates, Stephen thinks, yeah, I don't think he's actually translating what I said literally because he hears the name of God mentioned several times. So you know, clearly <laughs> Jacob is putting this in the local vernacular here. The day is pleased with all this. This is his first greeting from a European ruler since he became day, which we know was just a few days ago. He sees Stephen looking at a pair of double-barreled rifled guns, and he says, he has just taken them apart to examine them and had a very hard time with a particular spring getting the guns back together. But with God's help, he had done it. And Stephen asks if he can look at the closest one. And seeing Stephen handle it so expertly, the day asks if Stephen hunts. Stephen says, yes, he shot many creatures, partly for sport and partly for study. Ah. So this is all going quite well so far. You know, I think ad admiring somebody else's guns is always a good thing. Let's see where that gets us. Meanwhile, coffee and hookahs come in and they drink and smoke. And Stephen compliments him on the excellent coffee and asks permission of the day to deliver his message. He tells the day about the Shiite brotherhoods and this whole plot. Uh, and when he gets to mentioning Bonaparte, the day gets angry and calls Bonaparte a son of a dog. Stephen can see, though, that the day's attention is wandering. And the day says, your musters must have weak advisors if they still believe all this after the Royal Navy had so banged up Bonaparte's friends on the Adriatic coast. He says he loved the Royal Navy, knew Sir Sidney Smith at Accra, but believes that all these things, these political things, uh, should be left to his vizier, who understands politics. The vizier says that he is simply a soldier, and he knows a soldier's fate, and he implies that therefore he knows what Napoleon's fate should be as also a soldier. It must be, he says, that Bonaparte must fall. It is written. Bonaparte has basically exceeded you know, the, the the success, the, uh, the, the the prestige allowed for a simple soldier, and for that reason, he's destined to fail. Well, let's see. Let's remind ourselves of the title of the book and ask ourselves how long Napoleon's got left. <laughs> 
Right, right, right. And let's stick a, a little pin in this about a simple soldier going past what's allowed. We won't get to it for a while, but it just occurred to me that you know, yeah, this is the day good, good. talking about, you know, I'm a simple soldier and simple soldiers shouldn't do this. So fascinating. The day looks back at the guns and t- says to Stephen, choose one of them and shoot it all afternoon so you can get used to it. Before the lion hunt, he says they're going to walk in blood-soaked shoes to cover their scent. He wants to wait in a cave, a cave called Ibn Halkal's cave, a place where he himself had meditated during his travels. It's just big enough for two men. The big lion named Mahmoud and his mate have their young in a larger cave further up the stream. And Mahmoud walked past this cave, this Ibn Halkal cave, every evening to hunt for his family. He had killed one of the day's own men down there recently and often returns with his prey hanging left, giving them a clean shot into his right ear from inside the cave. So the day has thought very, very carefully over many repeated observations at close quarters of this lion exactly how to go about shooting him. It's interesting that, like the vizier, he doesn't shoot at birds that are flying. He only shoots at birds that are perched. He's waiting for the chance to get a a clear shot at his unsuspecting and still prey. Now, to the day's credit, the lion did kill one of his men. Same can't be said for the palm doves of the vizier, right? But it's still, I think if you've got Patrick O'Brien's sensibility about nature and loving animals, this whole rather cold-blooded setup to to get an easy kill, what you might not call a glamorous sporting kill, but an easy kill, probably feels a little bit uneasy. Anyhow, the day is looking forward to it. He says, we shall, God willing, have the kindest mood for both his journeys. Stephen replies in the affirmative, indeed we shall, with the blessing. So Mike, dig into it for us here. Ibn Haukal, whom this cave is named after, that's such a specific name, it sounds like it must mean something. Yeah, I I was fascinated by that too, Ian. This Qasim Mohammed Ibn Haukal had a series of great travels around 943 and published a book, a book of ways and provinces containing maps, illustrations, geographic and ethnographic material. So apparently this guy had traveled widely through this area. And because of his writings, we know where he stopped and what he did. So it's like you've mentioned many times before, and you can almost imagine O'Brien having a copy of this on yeah. his shelf or finding it in some physical library as he's doing this enormous amount of research that he does for these things. It's amazing. Well, Mike, looking at the clock and reflecting on what might still be on the library shelves for us to look up, maybe this is a good time to take a short break. So um, go take a look at your library shelves, read up on your lions, and we'll be back very shortly. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers Welcome back. Hope you're a refreshed, perhaps taken a slim volume off the shelf. And we rejoin Stephen and Jacob, who spend the next morning at the lake. Stephen's teaching Jacob the elements of ornithology, while Jacob is teaching Stephen a little bit more Arabic, Berber, and Turkish. And 
the two of them are working together so that Stephen can learn what O'Brien calls the nature, temper, and power of this gun that the day has loaned him. Mm. Stephen wants to make sure he's really familiar with this thing before he goes hunting with the day. Jacob asks him about the spiral grooves in the gun's barrel. And Stephen explains to him that this is an American gun, that Americans can shoot something as fast and agile as a squirrel from a long distance because these spiral grooves spin the bullet and and allow it to fly true, much truer than some of the guns that they use here. Well, they've spent so much time that the day sends Ibrahim out to find them so that the lamb that they want to eat first and then rest so that they're ready to go is not overcooked. And as they eat, Stephen compliments the gun, saying it's as beautiful, and he's never fired one better. You're talking about how well he can hit something from such a long distance with this thing. And the day says that Sir Smith had said the same thing about his very own sword when the day beheaded one of Napoleon's soldiers who'd broken through and charged at Sir Smith. And Ian, now I think we're back into the history. You know, we'd, we'd mentioned this a little bit earlier with the Bezier talking about the day's hatred of Napoleon and where he had yeah. you know, kind of encountered yeah. him. You want to bring us up a little bit here? What's what's O'Brien doing? What's historical? What's not? Sure. So this guy, Omar Pasha, in the story is presented as being a nephew of Jezar Pasha, who a decade or two before had been the Ottoman governor of the Levant, the area including Egypt and for all the way from the Nile Delta round to Turkey. And the story about this guy fighting with Sir Sidney Smith to defend Accra from Napoleon's siege is absolutely true, including the bit about uh, Jezar Pasha pulling Sir Sidney back from the fighting to keep him there as a figurehead without, uh, without being injured. Now, Accra is in modern-day Israel. It's a fortress tower. It's been besieged. Um, off and on, many times over the centuries, starting with the Crusades in the 13th century. This siege in 1799 was part of Napoleon's campaign in Egypt, uh, the campaign that had been interrupted, set back, you might say, by Nelson's victory at the Battle of the Nile in 1798. And in a similar vein, this siege in 1799 ended with further defeat for the French and, and resulted in an outbreak of plague among the French survivors. It turned out it wasn't very good news to be a soldier campaigning for Napoleon far from home. Mm. The siege and this whole episode resulted in yet more fame for the notoriously flamboyant and uh, independently minded Commodore Sidney Smith. Referred to here as Sir Smith, uh, he wouldn't actually be knighted by the British crown until 1814, but as early as 1799, had been permitted to use the Sir in his name because of a knighthood that he had received from the King of Sweden a decade earlier. So, Sidney Smith is a reference that we've come across before. First of all, he appears as a character in a book called Trafalgar Fog of War, the book that we reviewed and discussed with our friendly guest, Seth Hunter, a.k.a. Paul Bryars. And secondly, closer to the O'Brien homestead, Sir Sidney Smith had been the subject of adoration and fandom verging on sycophancy on the part of Captain Lord Clonfort back in the Mauritius command. And for reasons that I can't quite tell, there's a further connection to this story, which is that Clonfort had possession of a narwhal tusk, which he was absolutely determined was a unicorn horn. <laughs> Even more determined, I think, than, uh, than preserved Killick is now. 
And uh, interestingly, that was part of the character of Unicorn Horn given to Clonfort, allegedly by um, Sir Sidney Smith. I'm sure we're going to come back to horns and tusks and narwhals um, in a chapter or so. The afternoon passes in the evening, and as the glow of the moon begins, the day has their feet covered in goat's blood to hide their scent, and he and Stephen head off to hunt this lion. And Stephen's noticing that the day moves silently. He's just a model hunter with one exception. His gun barrel shines in the moonlight. O'Brien tells us that Stephen, who was raised in cold, wet countries, where, as O'Brien writes, the duty of keeping powder dry had assumed religious proportions, had his rifle under his cloak with the butt below his knees. And as they arrive at the cave, their hiding spot, the day turns and accidentally dislodges some shale. So he's been perfectly silent this whole time, but they've gotten to the spot and he causes this shockingly loud avalanche. They both stand stock still for a long time. And the only sounds they hear are two owls kind of talking and answering one another. Mm. So the day very gently cuts away some of the shrubs and they make it so that they can look down on the path below. There, they see a striped hyena who's working out a scent trail. And then they realize after, after they've kind of ducked back into the cave that it's following the blood on their shoes. When it reaches the place where they last turned, it also turns and runs straight at the opening of the small cave. It stands at the opening, transfixed, staring at them, and then turns and flees, I guess, seeing that this is this is not the goat. It's mad laughter, O'Brien tells us, is echoing across the valley and neither man speaks. And I thought, wow, what a way to kind of set this scene up here. Holy yeah. smokes. And uh, these two characters in an entirely O'Brien-like world, right? It's, it's night and they're kind of trying to conceal themselves, but actually what they're also doing is just blending in. They're trying to become part of this natural environment. And as a result, they came really up close and personal with the hyena. The hyena didn't seem that bothered by them and kind of skedaddled after a bit of howling. What, what else are they going to encounter here? And, you know, is it going to have that kind of barking confidence that the hyena's got? There's a long wait then. And the long wait becomes wearisome to Stephen, despite the fact that he can listen to the tings of the repeating chime of his watch in his ear. The day, meanwhile, is standing completely silent and still until Stephen finally sees him shift enough to change the grip on his gun. Then the form of a lion passes. And as the text says, Stephen was left the sharpest possible image of a great, smoothly moving creature, pale and with a pale mane even, shoulder blades alternately protruding through a mass of muscle. A perfectly confident, self-contained and concentrated animal between nine and ten feet long, perhaps three and a half feet at the withers, although he held his head much higher than that, and weighing a good 30 stone with that enormous chest. And I, wow. I don't know what quite to do or to think as we get this very, very beautiful, very evocative description of a lion by moonlight. And the only person who's really qualified to say, let's talk about what we're looking at here, somebody who's been here before, it's the day. He smiles at Stephen and whispers the name of the animal, Mahmoud. Now, Mike, you, you look this up. I'm super impressed by this. The name Mahmoud in Arabic is a well-chosen one, right? 
It is. It means praiseworthy, and it's one of the many names given to the Prophet Muhammad. So this is this is a pretty, you know, pretty revered creature here. Right. Soon they hear crashing branches, the sound of a lion's kill from down at the lake. Later, they hear the jackal's call start, you know, the jackal's coming in with this fresh kill, trying to get at pieces of it. And finally, the sound of a lion walking back through the downstream bushes. Mahmoud comes into sight on the left, carrying a heavy wild boar. His head is high and turned a little bit to the left to keep the head away from his legs, giving the day who drawn the straw to get the first shot a very clear shot at his right ear. The day fires and the lion falls, but gets back on his feet again. The day shoots him again, and he falls forward, twitching and not moving, but his lioness appears. She licks the death wound, moans, looks directly into the cave, and charges, reaching the cave in five bounds. Stephen sees her eyes clearly in the moonlight. It's a simple shot, says O'Brien, and he writes, with real regret, he killed her as she rose in her last leap. And you know, I'm reading this thinking, wow. you know, the day has told Stephen earlier that these two lions have two children. Yeah. Stephen had just seen the father killed, and now he himself kills the mother because it's a double barrel gun. He's out of bullets. Yeah. This lioness is about to take the day down, so Stephen really has no choice. But Stephen regrets having to kill her. And and I think Stephen would regret having to kill a lioness at any time. But I can't imagine the emotional wallop right now of shooting this mother just after his daughter lost her mother, kind of killing this wife just after Stephen lost his wife. Ah. It's great. And we've been brought to that point by O'Brien. Really, really great writing. It's really economical. Like all of the intensity and the emotion and the description is in just a few paragraphs and we're we're right there with it it's just fantastic fantastic writing now we've been right there in the cave for a while now with the day and with Stephen, but we change our point of view to the rest of the encampment the day's huntsmen hear these three shots they would have been inspecting only one they heard three shots they know something is amiss five of them come running with torches and they find their chief and his guest guarding these dead lions against the jackals and the hyenas. By the light of the fire, they skin Mahmoud and his mate, while the head huntsmen lead the day and Stephen back to the camp. And the days being very, very uh, solicitous of Stephen, giving him his hand whenever the going is a little bit steep. And at camp, the, the day wants to talk about stuff. He summons Jacob who translates for Stephen the day's gratitude and congratulations. Quite remarkably well-phrased and convincing, we are told. And Stephen says to Jacob, please reply with whatever is proper, and uh, bows with gestures, he says, that disclaimed all merit, but the force of very strong emotion so recently felt but only now perceived was mounting, so that he wholly longed for silence and his bed. Yeah, mm. wow. Us, us too, wow. I think, at that point. Yeah. Now, yeah. Stephen's ready to withdraw, but the day and Jacob aren't quite. Jacob continues to translate. The day says that Mahmoud's cubs are perfectly capable of looking after themselves. Really nice moment for the day to have some insight into part of the anguish that Stephen's feeling here. The cubs are capable of looking after themselves. 
they have in fact already killed young boars and fawns. But nevertheless, the day promises that they shall be given a sheep or two every week for some months. That's great. And he continues, as for the foolish tale about gold for the Shiite heretics, he assures you that not an ounce, not half an ounce, shall ever pass through Algiers while he is day. And he will send the vizier a direct order to that effect in case there should ever have been a ghost or perhaps I should say an apparition of misunderstanding or incomprehension. Stephen nodded, smiled and bowed yet again. Omar looked kindly at him and said to Jacob, My saviour is himself in need of salvation. Pray lead him very quietly away. He clasped Stephen imprinted a bristly kiss on his cheek, bowed and withdrew. It's another really lovely moment, Mike. And we said earlier on that we were starting to see that there was maybe more than just the claimed identity of being a simple soldier. And he's clearly not a brute and he's clearly not unfeeling. It's a really, really touching moment, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And and if there was any, at least in my mind, if there was any question about whether they're being a little duplicitous with Stephen, I think the day is now being very clear here to say, look, you saved my life, which, which again, I think was incredibly magnanimous for somebody in this kind of position in this kind of society. Yeah. And yeah. let me tell you, I, I can see you're upset. I'm going to take care of these children. And let yeah. me tell you, you're getting exactly what you want. And then seeing, you know, again, this, how he is so tenderly acting towards yeah. Stephen, you know, realizing the thing, thinking, wow, this is a very different guy than I expected, given everything we'd heard about him. So the next day after a farewell feast, Stephen and Jacob head out later than they'd hoped to, unsure if they're going to reach the vizier's oasis by nightfall. And they're riding well ahead of the others in their party to exchange their impressions of the day. Stephen says he originally thought of the day as a, you know, a cheerful brute, a mere soldier, someone who could turn very wicked, but his silence and motionless in the long wait for the lion and his open and unstinting praise when Stephen shot the lion, as well as his steadiness while she charged, and some of the words that Stephen understood the day to be saying as the day led Stephen up that slope afterwards, you know, really changed his opinion. And he says he thinks, and O'Brien, he thought of him as O'Brien writes, as an ideal shooting companion, very quiet, very knowledgeable, courageous, of course, and jovial when joviality was in place. But apart from that, not an intelligent man, not positively stupid like some other high-placed soldiers, and probably quite subtle in military politics but not in himself particularly interesting, however likable. And I think, wow, there's, there's quite the uh, assessment by Stephen here. Yeah, I, I can almost imagine Patrick O'Brien giving this assessment of somebody that he's met. Because we know how he, he had a very high bar for you know, erudition and learning. And there might be somebody that he met who would go, yeah, decent fellow. Yeah, understood, sympathetic. Not as learned as me, but still a, a courageous and knowledgeable person. Jacob asks if all the impalements bothered Stephen. And Stephen says, well, they they seem to do this just in the same way that the British do public hangings. But that's not what had formed his opinion of the day. 
he had also wondered if the day's apparent simplicity was quite what it seemed and if the day truly left foreign affairs to the vizier. But he says his mistrust and suspicion earlier may just be a result of his and Jacob's calling as intelligence agents. So he's kind of starting to reevaluate where things lie between the day and the vizier. They discussed different colleagues who'd gone mad dealing with their paranoia, you know, their, their uncertainty and skepticism about other people and their motivations. He says that when he'd stopped to eat earlier on, he'd found the day's present, the American rifle that Stephen had used in his baggage. And his description of paranoia is borne out here. He says he was astonished in a, in a good way, but he had stopped to check that the lock and the stock and both barrels had not been tampered with because he remembered that a man they both knew had been killed with the gift of a fowling piece that had exploded the first time he fired it. Jacob says the day could speak more freely to him than to Stephen, and he says that the day's choice of words, particularly in Turkish, was that of much more than a mere soldier. He does wonder, however, if the day is clever enough to manage all the moving parts of his government. He's got the Janissaries, he's got the Corsairs, the pirates, and he's got his curious vizier. And asking Stephen's opinion of the vizier himself, he gets this. He's a politician, says Stephen, but not without an agreeable side. I should not trust him in any matter of importance. Mm. So even with his very clear, I think, characterization of the day now as a sort of sensitive and empathetic character they're still doubting they're still not sure whether both the day and the vizier are on side whether they can count on what the day has promised to do in terms of the promise of the treasure despite the great drama and catharsis of the gun and the hug and the kiss from the day it's still not settled yet is it Sort of know for sure, and it, it leads right. you not to think so. Absolutely. Well, right in the middle of this, they hear hooting and horns behind them, and the the fastest of the Turkish guards that that the consul had sent with them rides up very quickly from this larger group of men, still a great way off behind them. And he says that the others cannot keep up, and they're really worried about the Sirocco uh, that's going to be with them in an hour or two. And Jacob looks back when he says this and says, ah, if I hadn't been prating, I would have noticed the precursor of this storm a long time ago. He tells Stephen that a very strong southeast wind will soon reach them with its hot air dense with very fine sand, which is going to require them to all have close woven cloth over their mouths and noses. Stephen says, well, you know this area. What should we do? And Jacob says, well, we're not going to reach the oasis before nightfall. But perhaps the Shiraka won't be so bad after nightfall. And he thinks they're going to be better off continuing to travel in the dark than to try and camp unprepared in the wilderness with very little water and the animals that they have likely to be harassed by wild beasts if they stop. So, boy, a little bit of jeopardy back again here. Yeah. And as the three of them ride back to the rest of the group, uh, Stephen asks Jacob to ask Ibrahim if he'll be able to recognize the trail after dark in this sandstorm. Ibrahim starts to laugh and says, oh, I'm as competent as seven dogs. And there's this very odd rejoinder from Stephen who seems to want to sort of join their lighthearted feeling here. He says, then pray tell him that if he succeeds, he shall have seven gold pieces. And if he do not, then he must be impaled. And 
<laughs> clearly not the Jack Aubrey School of Leadership. We've talked before about Stephen perhaps being a little bit on the spectrum. And this is a good example, of, in my mind, of somebody who's a little bit on the spectrum trying to make a joke and then ending up sounding a bit cold and a bit fake about it. Like, do this for me, otherwise you're going to get skewered. Well, let's, let's just see, shall we? Let's see how it pays off. Towards the end of this nighttime hike, the journey grows even more horrible. Uh, the wind gets stronger. There's dense sand in the air hiding the moon. And even the seven dogs, even the guide, faltered time and again. Ibrahim often begs them to stop and huddle together while he tries to figure out where to go. And when he tries to get everyone to leave the shelter of the large animal bodies again, he is repeatedly kicked and pinched and reviled. And he is finally in tears the last time when all of a sudden, in the air, the sand parts momentarily and they see the sparse lanterns of the oasis. Almost everyone in the oasis has gone to bed. And uh, not a huge sigh of relief, Mike, but at least a small to medium-sized sigh of relief for those of us who have been on these journeys with Stephen before. Right, right. Well, Ahmed, we'd heard before, the undersecretary at the vizier's camp, Here's Jacob's voice among a big controversy outside. Turns out that the porters are unwilling to get up and open the gates. Ahmed comes out and induces the porters to do their duty. And then Ahmed arranges food for everyone, baths for Stephen and Jacob, and tells Jacob that, you know, kind of, sorry, you're, you're going to have to share my quarters again. We don't have room for everybody. So, Again, this, we started with that particular look between Ahmed and Jacob, and now Jacob is back in Ahmed's quarters for the night. And in the right. morning, Jacob has a very hard time awakening the grouchy, deep-sleeping Stephen. And he reminds Stephen about their conversation about the Canaanites, especially the Canaanites of the Beni Mazab. Ahmed, he tells Stephen, is a Canaanite too. So both Jacob and Ahmed had recognized each other. And Ian, you talked about this, you know, it's like the Sethians from Shelmerston, the way these Canaanites are with each other here. And he says, Ahmed knows that he and Stephen are not traveling from medical knowledge or experience and has offered his help so that Ahmed realizes that they're here on another mission here. And Mm -hmm. Stephen says, well, you know, I trust your intelligence judgment, Jacob. So is this a good source what information might he be able to provide? And, you know, what's his price? Jacob says that Ahmed is a very sound source and has already shown him a copy of the vizier's message to the sheik of Asgar. Ah, this is the guy who's supplying the gold. So the vizier is yeah. writing the guy this, you know, the sheik that's supplying the gold, telling him to recall his caravan at once and load the treasure on a very fast sailing Zebek which is leaving from Arzilla, captained by the most capable and fortunate Corsair in Algiers. It is going to wait with a strong guard until the winds come into the west and then pass through the Strait of Gibraltar in the night, heading to Durazzo by the fastest sea lanes, the one that this particular captain knows the best. So, you know, we're wondering, is it true? What's going on? Who's playing whom? But it seems if this letter is true, that the vizier certainly has been playing Stephen the whole time. We don't know if he's playing the day as well, but ah, so here we are. Yeah. And Stephen's uh, interested in checking out the validity of his source. 
he asks if Ahmed is expecting a reward. Now, we learn that he's not. Jacob believes that Ahmed would, in return, though, appreciate a kind word to the governor of Malta so that Ahmed can set up in Valletta with his cousins. But, he says, agreeing to that potential reward is not a condition of offering this help. So Stephen appears to have this intelligence from an apparently legitimate source. He asks then, how quickly can we get going? Because he's worried that this vile wind might have, as he says, plucked Ringle from her moorings or blown surprise to some leeward shore beyond Sardinia. And as they wait mm. for the vizier to appear for the formalities and the leave-taking the next morning, this would have been a, a really even more tedious wait if Stephen had not caught sight of the anomalous nuthatch, the kind of bird that Jacob was being so sniffy about earlier on in the chapter. Jacob finds Stephen and tells him, at last, the vizier is in motion, but they found that the gun, the gun left in Stephen's baggage as the present from the day, is missing. The Turkish guards are distraught. Obviously, they are worried that they're going to be accused of theft. They beg to be told what to do. Now, Stephen doubts that anyone in their party would have taken it because he knows that the day thought the world of that pair of guns. And so he's wondering, maybe the day had second thoughts about the gift and just discreetly took it back. However, although he values the rifle for its associations and for the manner of its giving, Stephen decides not to mention the loss. And the text goes on here. Nor did he mention it. But a man far less subtle than the vizier could have told from his short though civil answers that he was not quite pleased. His first voluntary remark was, I am afraid, sir, that we must tear ourselves from your presence at the end of this excellent cup. And the vizier said, I very much regret that I was not told of your arrival. I should have enjoyed several more hours of your company, but I trust you were satisfied by your conversation with the day. Perfectly satisfied, I thank you, sir, said Stephen, finishing his coffee and standing up. But now, if you will forgive me, a very long road lies ahead. Let me first make the fullest acknowledgement of your remarkable hospitality, and then allow me to beg that you will transmit all my due respects to his highness, and my thanks for his kindness. End of chapter 7. And Mike, it, it's mm. very noticeable. As O'Brien kind of points out, we see in the text there, Stephen is being not, not rude, but very correct, and very official in taking his leave from the vizier. Very different, I think, from how he would have taken his leave from the day if the day was there right at that moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think Stephen's sussing out between the day and the vizier, perhaps what's going on here. And right. maybe in his own mind, thinking right. about this whole rifle thing a little bit more. I'm not happy. And in any event, I got to get going right now. And so here's the best way to do it. So to me, all of this chapter is once again, just this affirmation that O'Brien is still just as good on land as he is at sea. Right. 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 We've got perhaps the only nautical reference in this whole chapter was that one at the end that the ships might have been blown away. But it's it's a great chapter. It's it you know, this whole story, you know, there's lots of jeopardy and politics and questionable alliances, folks impaled or threatened to be, you know, we had danger in the jungle at night, deadly storms, this bold theft of the day's gift of Stephen. And we learned clear deception going on 
behind their backs with the vizier having sworn to know nothing about this gold, while clearly it appears now arranging to have it travel even faster to avoid the pursuing Ringle and Surprise, while doing it in a way that perhaps takes Algiers a little bit out of the picture. You know, so we don't know whether the day knows about it or not, but this could accomplish both ends. Yeah. And all that with that incredible emotional wallop with Stephen, you know, having to kill the Cubs' mother, the day's interaction with Stephen. I'm just, I'm still taken so much by this. It's great, isn't it? it? It's a good one for the fans. I think you can say this about the book as well, as well as just this chapter. It's not just a rehash of Greatest Hits, but there are some nice sort of smiling half looks back to things that we know and things that we've heard before. We're back in the world of the politics of the Middle East, just like we had in Ionia Mission and in Treason's Harbor. And it's a really interesting chapter because he's drawing together these things that we've heard about before, like politics, like hunting, like Middle Eastern potentates, in a way that drives along this particular plot that raises the stakes. The character is Jeopardy, right, for Stephen. I guess a little for Jack, but especially for Stephen. And the mission is still not guaranteed success. And the whole tone of it at the end, even though we got that really touching moment of kind of man-to-man recognition between the day and Stephen, they're still not sure where the truth lies. They're still not sure whether this intelligence giving the lie to the vizier is reliable or not. We don't know anything. Has Stephen, in fact, been double-crossed? Was it the vizier acting alone? Was the day, in fact, in on this? And if they are being double-crossed, there's plenty of opportunity for these fast-riding men on horseback to cut Stephen and Jacob down before they get back to Algiers. And if they get back, what, what are the chances that they could find a ship near the land? What are the chances that they could do whatever they need to do to get back aboard ship, pass messages, and intercept the gold? A successful naval mission now seems to be what they need. It seems to be their only chance for success. Stephen's all shot out, I think, with his intelligence mission ashore in Algiers. Maybe it's been successful. Maybe it was sabotaged from the get-go. What do you think, Mike? Well, I, I think it is usual. O'Brien leaves us only one way to find out. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, Mike, I should like that of all things. <laughs> solicitous of Stephen. Uh, he's giving him his hand whenever the going is a little bit sleep. <laughs> Here's another good one. Giving him his hand. Yeah. Giving him his hand whenever the going is a little bit steep.